Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Vox Media is looking for a principal designer for their platform group, and you can work out of their NYC or DC offices as well as remotely. Starting this month, we've also included job postings from Indeed.com for full-time positions across a number of different titles. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you again about our Holiday Gift Guide Contest. We just published our Holiday Gift Guide a few days ago, so make sure you go check that out. Just go to revisionpath.com and click the green banner at the top of the page. It'll take you right there. There's a lot of goodies in this year's gift guide, and you have the opportunity to win an item of your choice from the gift guide. So go ahead, scroll down to the bottom, fill out that short form, and enter today. That contest ends on December 15th. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Then check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code SPREADLOVE and you'll save 10% off your purchase. All right, here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. Still holding steady at 27 patrons right now for a combined total of $192 per month. Again, a huge thanks to everyone who has already pledged their support and appreciation for the show. Really means a lot. If you like what we're doing here and you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. Now for this week's interview. I talked with Daryl Crooks, creative director at The Atlantic. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So the name is Daryl Crooks, and I am the creative director at The Atlantic magazine, theatlantic.com in Washington, D.C. So you had a really prolific career in design, mostly designing, I think, for magazines and for publications. I want to talk, I guess, you know, at first about The Atlantic. Tell me just kind of like, what's a typical day like for you when you're working there as a creative director? Well, typical day, I guess it depends on what time, what time of the month (laughs) we're talking about. A day like today, we're actually closing an issue, which means we're, you know, we're wrapping things up, sending stuff to the printer. So today... What am I doing? Jeez, uh, this morning I worked on the cover. I'm working on the cover a little bit as we speak. <laughs> I've met with, let's see, I met with the developers to talk about our, our new app that we're rolling out, reviewing some final art, and then today, you know, I'll kind of sign off on pages, 
basically from from some of the other designers and so the, right now there's a lot of back and forth between us, copy department, research department, the other designers, and then this afternoon I'll have a meeting with our digital design director to uh, to talk about a new kind of uh, politics page we're doing. So it kind of depends. Usually it's 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 not always as busy, but this is kind of the busy time, the the kind of middle middle of the month. So there's a lot going on today. And so as creative director, you're not just designing the cover like you know sort of like what you're saying you're designing the layout the pages also the mobile app and everything like that so your your design touches pretty much all throughout the brain yeah yeah so it's yeah it's a little bit yeah it's everywhere right now but yeah this week is our closing week so a lot of the work this week is on the magazine but in between that there's you know like you said there's there's uh, stuff on the on the website that I have to work on, you know, stuff pops up. It could be a book cover for an ebook we're doing that I'll have to design or branding. We're doing a partnership with somebody or, or launching some sort of new product. So yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's all over the place. So you say you're kind of, you know, working on the, the cover now and everything like that. What are your goals when it comes to designing a cover for the Atlantic? Goals? Well, you know, my job is, as creative director is to you know is to communicate these these ideas we're not a celebrity based magazine we are we don't do a lot of service it's not like best new restaurants or, or best doctors whatever we the Atlantic is all about ideas so my job is to kind of take these ideas that are sometimes very complicated and very nuanced ideas and arguments and sometimes the pieces are very long that cover kind of, you know, every aspect of, of whatever issue it's tackling. But, you know, my job is to kind of take those ideas and, and boil it down to one image, which is a lot more challenging than it sounds, but to kind of boil it down to one image that can kind of communicate to the public quickly and, and say as much as possible without being too complicated. So I try to keep the cover simple, but I try to keep them smart. And I try to make sure that they make sense editorially. It's a lot to unpack with each with each cover, but you know, my goal is always just to kind of keep it simple and smart. So before you worked at the Atlantic, you were doing the creative direction work at Ebony as well, right? That's right. Yeah. And really that was such a I wrote about that actually for Media Bistro, like back in twenty ten. Yeah. That was such a bold and iconic kind of redesign of what is you know, typically kind of a, a staid, conservative kind of brand. Yeah. And you also, you know, did your kind of redesign touch a little bit with the Atlantic, too. What is your process when you approach brand redesigns like that? Oh, man. Well, I kind of tackle that one magazine at a time. I think with Ebony, you know, I'd just come off of working at, at Esquire. And the Ebony rebrand, I came to Ebony with, with a lot of ambition for what the magazine could be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of taking some of the stuff I learned at Esquire and trying to apply it to to Ebony and just kind of make it just visually exciting, first and foremost. Step up the level of photography, make each page interesting, bring in new illustrators. So, you know, I wanted basically to do a complete front-to-back redesign. And it was tricky because, you know, Ebony is, is it's an icon. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's family... You know, you always had an Ebony magazine in the house. So it was like this kind of cultural icon. So I had to be kind of, you know, had to be careful with, with how I did it. But, 
you know, the editor, you know, I worked with the editor, Amy Barnett, to just kind of reimagine the magazine, not just visually, but, but editorially, new sections and stuff. So, you know, I started with the logo. I redesigned the logo because basically the logo hadn't changed. And, you know, the magazine at that time was 66 years old. And the logo had never changed in that entire time. So I started there. And then from, from the logo, you know, introduced the color palette that was kind of based on this Romare Bearden painting. And then kind of introduced a new kind of typography language that was kind of based on, you know, record covers. So the idea was to kind of make this like vibrant, kind of almost musical looking magazine and kind of using some cultural influence to inform the design through the colors, through the, through the fonts, and obviously the, the history of the magazine itself. So that's kind of where I started. And then, you know, I basically started the job and just dove in <laughs> and pretty much single-handedly. Small staff was just me and one other designer and just kind of took everything that was there and kind of chucked it out the window and just started from scratch, basically. So that's kind of how the, the Ebony thing happened. The, the Atlantic thing, again, a legacy brand, Obviously, it's known for its journalism, and it's still known for journalism more than the design. So, kind of approached it in a different way. Didn't want it, you know. Obviously, I couldn't do the same things with color and, and typography, uh, just given the nature of the magazine. So, the Atlantic redesign that I started with was a lot more restrained than the stuff I I did at Ebony, but that's just because of the nature of the magazine. But again, I started with the logo. Kind of did a refresh of the logo, try to introduce a few things, you know, new fonts and stuff. We have this kind of Poseidon icon that, that magazines use throughout its past and updated that. So, you know, it was a much more restrained redesign. And, and in some ways, I'm, I'm still I'm still trying to figure out the Atlantic. I'm trying to still figure out, you know, I just redesigned it again <laughs> a couple of issues ago. So I'm, I'm constantly tinkering. You know, the Atlantic is, is first and foremost and has and always will be about the journalism and, and the pieces in the word. So whereas Ebony, I try to put design and, and that kind of thing more to the forefront. I've tried to be a little bit more subtle with what I'm doing with the Atlantic as far as the redesign. So I have a question here from Chris Barker. Chris is someone that I interviewed gee, maybe almost two years ago or so, but he was the first person that was like I would love if you could interview Daryl Crooks. He is my design idol. So he sent me a bunch of questions, but the first question actually relates to Ebony. He says, what are your thoughts on how Ebony has handled their redesign since you left? They've had some very popular slash controversial covers recently. The Cosby cover, the America Loves Black Culture cover, etc. You know, when I first started working there, one of my goals was to see the magazine become more, have more of the spirit that it had in the past, which was, mm-hmm. it wasn't just a magazine for black women or black men, it was for the, for the culture. It was for everybody and it tackled political stuff, it tackled violence, it tackled racism. You know, it wasn't until like the, the 80s where it became kind of like this, this celebrity kind of based magazine. So when I first started, I was hoping, you know, we could do more of that stuff and, and you know, we did some of the stuff on the inside, but never, never on the cover, which for obvious reasons, you got, you know, you got to sell magazines. But I was very excited to see, you know, particularly the Cosby cover and the, the reaction it got 
to see them take those chances because I don't think people are always willing to take those kind of chances. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was very exciting as a former creative director to see that in the Black America, the, the culture cover. So I thought it was great. I thought it was great. Yeah, there are artist friends of mine that saw the Cosby cover and they're like, I don't see why there's so much talk about it, but you have to consider Ebony as the brand and what their audience is and how that kind of image is something that really they've not seen. Like you said, in the 80s, I mean, I remember growing up reading Ebony and it was basically like Life magazine in a way, you know, there were celebrities on the cover and there were kind of nice fluffy pieces in the middle and it wasn't really anything, like you said, that spoke to the culture. It really sort of spoke to yeah. a certain you know, middle, upper middle class kind of way of living in a way and not really tackling social issues of the time. Yeah, I mean, the magazine was born out of, you know, out of the civil rights struggle, almost as a, almost in defiance of everything else that was happening. It was like, we're going to do this for ourselves. And it, it took on that role uh, during the civil rights struggle and, and you know, kind of got lost a little, little bit. Obviously, we're living in interesting times where it's more necessary than ever to have Places like Ebony kind of talk about these issues that we're having with police brutality and, and mass incarceration and, and housing rights and stuff like that. You need a magazine like that to be willing to, to tackle those issues. So, yeah, you know, it's great. It was great to see. Now, before your stint at Ebony, like you mentioned, you were at Esquire. And with both Esquire and with what you're doing with The Atlantic, you're kind of able to extend your design lens into app design. Yeah. Is it a big shift moving from analog to digital in that kind of way? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's big. You know, digital, you know, you kind of have to shift your, your thinking a little bit and, and focus more on the function sometimes than the, than the form. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of reasons you can't do some things when you're <laughs> dealing with digital. You know, you're doing print, you can kind of, whatever you can kind of think of or, or, or pull off. You can get done, but digital, the medium itself has, has some limitations. But at the same time, it has the virtues of being able to spread throughout the world, do things with video and animation that you just can't do in a, in a print magazine. So, you know, I've tried to take that kind of, that level of ambition and trying to apply it to the digital medium whenever, whenever mm -hmm. I can. You know, Esquire was a very experimental place. You know, editorially and, and digitally. I mean, I remember working on our first iPad app at, at Esquire. And, I mean, we spent so much money on that first app. It was ridiculous. But, you know, we just tried all kinds of things like 3D graphics and, you know, a shoe that would spin around and, and, and all that stuff. Not to say that it was successful, but that kind of experimental kind of mindset I try to bring to you know, to the Atlantic, you know, for the magazine and whenever I can digitally. So so let's kind of step back a little bit. Let's say you, because right now you say you're kind of right at the end of, of this particular cover that you're doing. Yeah. How do you approach a new cover for an issue? Like, how does it go when you're selecting right. photographers or illustrators? Like, how does the whole process, process. work? Yeah, it's a good question. So basically, talk to the editors and, you know, there's, there's basically a plan of all the stories that are going to be in each issue, basically for the whole year. It's kind of, it's roughly mapped out. So you know, I'll have okay. like kind of initial discussions with the editor, you know, James Bennett and, and editor-in-chief James Bennett, editor Scott Stossel and 
you know, we'll kind of just have kind of loose discussions about what's coming up and I'll kind of start thinking about it. I'll get like a rough draft of whatever the piece is. And then I read the piece. Sometimes I'll have an idea right away, a visual idea. Sometimes I won't. <laughs> but basically once I read the piece, you know, we'll, we'll all kind of get together, uh, me and uh, a couple of other editors and, and decide, well, you know, we'll kind of discuss what we're trying to say with this piece, right? Like, what is the takeaway? What is the Atlantic argument that we're trying to make here? So we kind of, you know, we'll talk about it, talk about it, and then kind of kick around some ideas. Either I'll present an idea I have or I don't have an idea and we'll kind of kick around some stuff. And hopefully something useful will come out of that meeting. Sometimes nothing useful comes out of it, but, you know, usually I'll have some kind of rough idea, you know, I want to... I want to use to convey this argument. And then from there, it's, you know, it's just a matter of execution. I think about like who the photographer is, what kind of photography it should be, what kind of mood I'm trying to portray. If it should be an illustration, it should be a photo illustration, it should be a reportage kind of photo. So I kind of think about the approach and then, you know, and then it's just a matter of executing from there. And, you know, we do a couple rounds of of cover reviews, we talk about the cover lines, make sure the cover lines work with the image, you know. So the whole process can take a month, sometimes even longer, depending how much lead time I have on the piece. But like I said, it's not a celebrity kind of based thing, so it's not as simple as just putting a picture of somebody on the cover. Like, it all has to come together. Like, the cover lines, the idea, the visual, it all has to come together to properly illustrate the story. So... Like I said, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's really, really hard. Sometimes it's successful. Sometimes it's not so successful. Sometimes we second guess ourselves. You know, I've had a couple covers changed at the last minute just because it wasn't working editorially. So it's a process, but it's a it's a fun process. So you've worked primarily with magazines throughout your career. Of course, we talked about The Atlantic, Ebony, Esquire. You've also done some work for Complex. Yeah. Men's Journal, The Source is where you got your start yeah. doing the record report, yeah. from what I recall from my research. Yeah. <laughs> of all the magazines that are out there, which one would you love to kind of get your hands on and do a redesign with? Oh, other magazines? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like <laughs> I feel like all the magazines I've wanted to work at, I've, I've kind of worked at. What's been your favorite cover for The Atlantic so far? You know, the reparations one was great just because mm -hmm. not in particular because of what I did or the design, but just the kind of reaction it got from people and the way it kind of spread, the way it kind of just, just went, you know, just was out there in the world and to kind of see that and see it on TV and, and to see people like having the magazine sell out and Barnes and Noble and New York and stuff like that. It was just the the moment that that was part of was probably my favorite cover. You know, there's been a couple of other ones. The piece we did about the new science of old age with the old man on the skateboard is still one of my favorite covers. It's just it was really <laughs> insane. Military spending one was cool. Where we used a uh, basically like one of those old kind of green army men. So I think those have been a few of my favorites. I remember that I bought my subscription for The Atlantic based off of that issue. Oh, which one? My subscription of The Atlantic. Yeah, based off of that reparations issue. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that was that, a good issue. You know, you're not the only person that, <laughs> who, you know, maybe that was their 
not necessarily first experience with the Atlantic, but the first issue they really picked up was was that issue. You know, it was just great. It was just great to see, and and the fact that there was a magazine out there willing to put that on the cover. You know, national magazine, a, a piece about reparations is not something you would ever think you would see, but you know, at that level. So the fact yeah. that we did it and it was successful, and obviously it wasn't because of the cover, it was because of Tanahasi's brilliant writing, Tanahasi Coates. But just to see that kind of make its way into the world was was one of my favorite moments working here. With all of the work that you've done with like layout design and, and cover design, what, in your opinion, makes a great magazine cover? Well, you know, I think especially recently uh, with the rise of kind of social media, you know, there's this kind of desire to go viral with your cover, you know, and, and just have it come out and have people react quickly. You know, I think, you know, it's important to, you know, that's great and all, but I think it's important to, like I said earlier, just kind of do something smart that really makes people think, you know, you want to kind of stop people in their tracks whenever you can and just do something unexpected whenever possible. You know, there's no real formula for what we do at the Atlantic. So every issue is a clean slate. So I think it's just important to surprise people whenever possible. All right, let's take it back a little bit. I want to go back to your time in college. You went to School of Visual Arts. Yeah. Tell me about your time there. What did SVA kind of instill in you? SVA, I mean, just being, you know, going to art school, specifically SVA, it's not like going to quote-unquote college. You know, there's no, like, uh, there's no football games. There's no fraternities and, and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like, it's almost like going to work. You know, you go, you're kind of like, <laughs> you're in Manhattan, you're kind of walking around, going to these different buildings where your classes are. So you're kind of like in the city. And yeah, it was kind of like going to work. I was going to school full time, or not full time. I was going to school during the day, like most normal people do for the first year, but I was broke, <laughs> like completely broke. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I actually ended up switching over to night school. So I go to school at night and I would work during the day different jobs. Like I was a busboy for a while. Then I got a job at this catalog company called Plusinski and Associates on West 18th Street. So I was basically working during the day. I go to class at night and, you know, just trying to figure out what to do. I was, I was trying to get, you know, at first I thought I was going to be like a, an illustrator, like a comic book illustrator because I was really into comic books. And once I got to school, I realized I wasn't that good because <laughs> it's just like people in the school, <laughs> these amazing illustrators and you know, so I was like, all right, I got to rethink this. So I took graphic design at the behest of, of my dad, who was concerned that I wasn't going to be employable if I was just doing drawings or illustrations. So I ended up taking graphic design. And then, you know, I decided I took this editorial design class at SVA. So at the time, the Source magazine was really big and vibe. And, you know, so basically kind of took this editorial design class you know, just as my graphic design class, basically. And I took the class and I loved it and actually made like my own little hip hop magazine. I still remember it was called 360. <laughs> it wow. Was like, uh, it was like my own version of the source, basically. I remember most stuff was on the cover. It had like a little record review section and all this stuff. So, but I just loved the process of, of 
was thinking about putting a page together and, and, and thinking about different sections and stuff like that. So that is where that spark first came from. And, you know, I had a great teacher, this guy, David Matt, who would become my boss later on in life. And I just loved it. I just loved the whole process of it. And I was like, you know, this is what I want to do. You know, it was kind of like the combination of the comic book stuff that I thought I wanted to do, plus the the graphic design. I was really into like the CD packaging. You know, it was like the whole combination of photos and, and design. So it was kind of like this this perfect combination of, of my two loves at the time, which were comic books and hip hop, and, and that kind of just lit the spark. And you know, so I was doing that in school. And this is kind of a long story, so I apologize to your listeners. But while I was in school, I'm doing this job, and, and you know, I was basically at this catalog company. Basically, it's like an assistant, right? So I do whatever needs to be done. If it was like you know, cutting things up in an exacto or spray mounting or doing messenger runs, I was basically like just this young kid who would run around and do stuff. But at the same time, you know, it was a catalog company, so they were designing catalogs, so they would let me do things on. You know, it was Quark at the time, so I'd do things in Quark. You know, there was a couple guys there that would, you know, teach me things, and I would ask them all kinds of questions. They knew I was into graphic design, and so one day, I'm at the catalog company, and this freelance designer starts working there. This guy, Miguel Rivera, shout out to Miguel. He comes in as a freelancer, and, you know, I get to talking to him, and he's telling me that he was a graphic designer, and obviously he was a graphic designer, but that he had done some CD packaging, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool, what? What CDs have you worked on? And he, you know, he tells me that he worked on Raekwon's, uh, only built for Cuban links. Cuban links, yeah. <laughs> for your older listeners, this was like, <laughs> you know, I'm dating myself here, but this is like classic, you know, 90s hip hop album. So he tells me that right. like my head almost exploded. You know, he's telling me stories about the photo shoot and putting it together. And after that, I was just like, you know, you know, I just basically like follow him around, like tell me everything, you know, kind of thing. So he leaves and basically, you know, I'd showed him my, my little class project and stuff. And he's like, ah, it's nice work kid and kind of thing. And, and, you know, <laughs> kind of teach things here and there and, and critique my stuff. And then, uh, so he leaves and actually the source magazine had started a magazine called the source sports. I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was like a sh- kind of short lived, maybe a couple years maybe less than that source, you know, was, was huge at the time. I mean, it was like one of the number one selling newsstand magazines and, uh, started yeah. a, a sports magazine. And, uh, so he remembered me from, he, he goes to be the art director of this magazine. He remembered me from the catalog company as a kid and he was young and hungry, whatever, you know, he calls me up, I guess at the time, I don't even think I had an email address. He calls me up and he's just like, you know, come over, we need some help. And I was, you know, so that was, that was basically how I got into magazines. And then from there, moved over to the Source magazine where I was doing the record report and all that stuff. And, you know, the rest is history. Five months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crazy. I mean, you know, I grew up, would walk around with the Source magazine in my pocket, you know, and, and to, to actually work there and get paid to work there and sit there and listen to hip hop and get paid to design and, and, you know, this is before albums would leak on the internet, but to hear albums before they came out and to know, you know, that Beanie Siegel is going to get four mics. And, you know, it was just like, this is <laughs> amazing. It was time of my life. And I think, you know, it was a great time in general for, you know, young 
designers of you know color because the source vibe you know you had stress you had ego trip you had all these magazines that were actually making money and you know this was like kind of the doorway for a lot of uh young edit you know editorial designers a lot of young editors writers this was the way we got in was through through these magazines and it really doesn't exist anymore like if you're a designer like i don't know if i could have taken my little <laughs> hip-hop magazine and gone up to you know whatever esquire at the time and, and try to get a job but this was kind of the way in for a lot of people that went on to do to do bigger things and it was it was just a great time now w- one i guess sort of a thread that i see between the work that you did then and the work that you're doing now is is music yeah so one thing that I sort of notice when I look at a lot of the covers that you've done, particularly for the Atlantic and some for Ebony, is that I get this sort of, I guess, record cover, CD cover kind of feel for it in terms of like the background. Like I, I can tell that you like to use a lot of neutral grays and stuff like that. And you also kind of worked a little bit in CD design and things like that, didn't you? Didn't you work for doing some design for a few artists? Yeah, I mean, you know, mostly freelance stuff, but did some stuff for Bougie Madison and, you know, a couple DJ friends and stuff like that, but never quite made it to the level of, of only built for Cuban links. But yeah, I mean, that was always what I wanted to kind of do. So I guess, I guess you're right. In some ways I've always been kind of influenced by, and maybe it still shows, but I think especially with the Ebony stuff, like that was a direct link to the stuff I was doing, specifically the Blue Note album covers, you know, yeah, yeah. Cool. that was a direct, <laughs> a direct influence on what I was doing. And there have been, a, you know, there have been other magazines. I remember back in the day, basically their whole look was was based off of Uno. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 always been, I guess, part of my process. <laughs> that and and <laughs> and cartoons uh, and, and and comic books, a combination of those, kind of somehow shows up in my work. Is there an artist out there that you would love to do a CD cover for? Oh. Like any artist or any music that's really kind of struck you? Uh, like a new artist? It can be any artist. Any artist. Oh, man. I'm a big Tribe Called Quest fan. <laughs> so okay. if, uh, if they ever regrouped and came out with an album, that would be amazing. But uh, You know they did that reunion recently on uh, The Tonight yeah, Show. Yeah, I saw that. Release the album and, and all that stuff, but yeah, that would be pretty cool to work with, work with Tribe. But uh, you know, it's changed. You know, like the in the same way, you know, the magazine medium has changed. Obviously, the music medium has changed. You know, I still remember buying CDs and opening up like a multi-page booklet and just seeing all these images and and, and type. And now it's just boiled down to like a little one-inch box on. I sound like an old curmudgeon right now, but it's kind of boiled down to, you know, this kind of tiny thumbnail space. So I think the aesthetics have kind of changed as well for CD packaging. But, you know, there's still people doing great, great stuff. Earlier, you spoke about your father in terms of, I guess, his support with (laughs) the work that, that you were doing, kind of going into design. Were your parents always supportive of you getting into design? I mean, you know, it, uh, <laughs> you know, my dad, and I think I told the story at the, the event, 
that I met you at, but, you know, I remember him taking me to, to SVA and going to the registrar's office and him asking the guy at the desk, basically, is my son going to be drawing pictures of people in Central Park? <laughs> and he was supportive in that he didn't want to stop me from doing it, but he was also maybe a little concerned that I wouldn't be able to make a living. So it's worked out. So he's, he's happy that I pursued it now. They would never tell me, no, go be a doctor or go be an accountant or whatever study engineering like they knew you know from early on that visual arts were that's what I wanted to do you know through high school through that's just always what my focus was on at the at the detriment of maybe other things I should have been focusing on but yeah they were you know they were supportive is the short answer now the black and design conference which is where we we initially had met yeah. there's a, another question that comes from Chris he says that you've done big design talks and lectures. Are you seeing diversity in the audience? Like, do you feel that it's increased or decreased as you've given talks like across the country? You know, I can honestly say that that conference was the most diverse event, talk, whatever thing I've ever been to. I go, you know, I don't, I don't do that many talks, so I can't say that that's increasing or decreasing. All I know is that there's usually, and I think I said this during my speech, is that I'm usually the only black guy in the room. And that's that's mm -hmm. the truth. Like, you know, if I go to an award show, like National Magazine Awards, it'll maybe be, you know, I kind of subconsciously do this. <laughs> when I, whenever I go to these things, it's kind of like, I kind of look around the room and, and see, I don't want to say I do a count, but I just take notice of what's what's happening. So I'm usually, you know, one of a handful of people I think in the design industry, there's there's been a little bit of growth as far as diversity. They go to like SPD and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm usually in the minority whenever I go through these things. So the black and design thing was, was uh, it was great to be a part of. Shout out to the AASU over at Harvard School of Design. But yeah, I, I can't say that it's, I mean, if it's increased, it's incrementally. <laughs> I think there's still a lot of work mm -hmm. to go, a lot of work to do. More kind of young designers are hopefully listening to your podcast and, and just kind of aware of, of the people who are out there doing the work and maybe deciding that they could have a career in design, you know? What would you say have been the fundamentals to your success? Work hard <laughs> is number one. Uh, you know, worked hard as hard as humanly possible at every job I've been too. Um, I mean, I think it goes without saying you gotta, you gotta work hard, but you gotta kind of be humble too, I think at the same time and realize that, you know, especially with magazines, it's a collaboration. It's like, it's not about you when you're, it's not even about your vision necessarily. It's, it's all these moving parts that have to kind of come together and you're just a part of that process. So, you know, you can't put yourself above the process. You can't put yourself above the final product and, you can't put yourself above the audience. You're there to help tell the story. You're there to bring people in. And, you know, you got to think about them whenever you're working on, on stuff. Whenever you're thinking about design, you got to think about other people. You got to think about other people's feelings. How are they going to feel about this cover? How are they going to react? So, you know, a big part of, I think, good design is kind of taking yourself out of the equation and, and thinking about other people. So, yeah, that and just don't be an asshole, basically. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just be a just be a person that people 
people want to work with. And I've tried to do that everywhere I've, I've been. And, and even if I'm frustrated or even if I'm tired or whatever, you just got to maintain your your sense of humor. <laughs> and it's got to uh, keep your eyes on the prize, you know, and, and think about the greater the greater goal, the greater mission. We're designers at the end of the day. We're not we're not doctors. We're not saving lives. We're we're designing things, and that's what it's about at the end of the day. What motivates you? Like, is there anything that's been really inspiring you lately, or exciting you about design in general? I'm inspired every day by other magazines. You know, I see work that other people do, and I'm like, man, I wish I could do that. I got to work harder, or I'm inspired by my own failure <laughs> at times. Like, I should have done this, I should have done that. So, so I'm constantly criticizing and critical of, of the work I do. But yeah, I mean, it's inspiration every day. I mean, from, you know, people send me, you know, illustrations and just looking at stuff online and these great blogs like Cover Junkie and Gym Class Magazine. And they, you can see magazines from all over the world. So, you know, there's constant, <laughs> there's constant kind of inspiration, I think, out there. But, but it's not just magazines. It's, you know, DC has some great art museums that I try to go to as much as possible. And you just try to, you just try to take it all in, you know, and, and let it inspire you as much as possible. What is your philosophy as a designer? And I wish I had something wise and, <laughs> <laughs> and profound to say, but like I said, you just got to keep things simple and think about, again, you got to think about other people and, and how other people feel about your design. It's not about how you feel about it. I mean, it is in some point, but you got to kind of take yourself, you got to have kind of like an out-of-body experience and think to yourself, if I were walking past a newsstand in the airport, would this would this make me laugh? Would this make me feel, this make me feel sad? Would this make me feel angry? Would this make me just provocative enough? So, you know, so the philosophy is keep it simple and think about other people. And not just about yourself. Speaking of other people, and I asked you this question also at Black and Design, but who have been some of your mentors or people that have sort of inspired you creatively? Yeah. Yeah, I remember this question. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've had a couple mentors, I think, throughout my career. Like I said, my first job was at The Source, and there was this guy, David Kirkrito. Shout out to Kirkrito. He gave my first job, and couple of jobs he's actually just kind of brought me on and, and we've worked together through multiple times over the years he's now the creative director at Esquire he's been there for almost 10 years but he's he's been a great influence and kind of challenged me throughout my career not just to, to do great work but to have fun while doing it too <laughs> and then you know my teacher at SVA David Matt again who was a great influence when I was in school and and there's been other people I mean like you know, Rem Duplessis, a, a former creative director at New York Times Magazine, now at Apple, was always an inspiration for the stuff he was doing at the New York Times Magazine. Wyatt Mitchell, again, at Apple, but he used to be at Wired. And then the, the New Yorker, you know, those guys have always been an influence. I mean, there was a time when, you know, it was like the creative director of New York Times Magazine, creative director of New Yorker, and the creative director of Atlantic were all African-American, which was which is pretty amazing about it. But, wow. And again, we all got our start at 
you know, take it back to earlier in the conversation, we all got started, you know, in hip hop magazines. Like Rem used to work at Blaze magazine, which is kind of a short lived. I don't know if you guys remember Blaze. It was kind of a short lived hip hop magazine. I think spun off from Vibe. Oh, I remember. I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was like Blaze. So Rem used to work there, and then Wyatt, of course, used to work at Vibe. So we all kind of got our start. I mean, those guys are a couple years older than me, but you know, we all got our started at hip hop magazines, and now those guys are out working at Apple. You know, so those guys have always been like an inspiration, you know, design wise and the kind of moves they've made in their career. What kind of opportunities do you think are out there now for for young black designers? I mean, there's there's not really any hip hop magazines now that people would would work at unless they started their own. Or yeah, something. yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's one of the one of the sad parts of the erosion of not media in general, but specifically that hip hop media and is that there aren't those those kind of outlets anymore for somebody to just cut their teeth and and, and and get their start. I mean, there's plenty of design opportunities everywhere. I think design is more in demand than ever, actually. I think people pay attention to design more than ever. But, you know, there just aren't those specific, <laughs> you know, there just aren't those specific outlets just, you know, just for a young black kid like myself when I was 20 years old. So, you know, I think, like you said, you have to sometimes create your own stuff. And I think it's more important to actually have the digital side of your game pretty tight. <laughs> if you're a young, you know, up-and-coming designer, like, you have to know digital to get a job. And it might lead you to other places. But, you know, there's plenty of digital work out there, specifically. The print thing is, is maybe not as prolific as it used to be, but the young designer, you know, Create your own site or create your own little magazine and, and get it funded with Kickstarter. You know what I mean? And that's the way people get noticed these days. You have to have kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, I think, in some ways. But mm-hmm. uh, in the digital age, I think it's easier than ever to, to get your own projects going and, and, and just try something. But, you know, if you have a good portfolio, if you pay attention to detail, if you look at what other people are doing, you're aware of trends and... and if you're a good designer, you're going to get a job. So you just have to find it because everybody needs good designers. <laughs> Trust me, I'm, you know, it, it's hard to find good designers. So if you're a good designer, you're going to get a job. So continuing off of that, what advice would you give for smaller niche publications on how to kind of cultivate and sustain a fresh point of view? I think you have to have a unique point of view, first and foremost. I mean, there's so much stuff out there. You know, from websites to to blogs to whatever, that your point of view has to be unique, whether it's visually or editorially. And you have to speak to people. Like I said, you have to have something that people want to have in their life. (laughs) You have to, you can't just do what other people are doing. You have to have a unique way of approaching it visually and, and editorially. I think once you do that, you'll find your audience. You know, but it just depends on the foundation that you're, you've built for yourself. You know, editorially, it's, it's first and foremost what has to be solid. <laughs> so if you have a solid editorial foundation, a solid idea, a clear idea that kind of frames everything you do, then you'll find an audience. When you look at your body of work, of all the work that you've done at, at all these different publications... Do you feel like you're where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? Like, are you satisfied creatively? 
Yes, I'm satisfied with where I'm at. I think creatively, I still have a lot to learn, and there's still a lot I want to do, but I think I'm in a position now where I can explore those things, which is, you know, which is what you, which, you know, it's what you work for, to have an outlet and to, you know, whether it be a magazine or your own company or whatever, to, to kind of explore things, and, and I think I'm in a spot right now, specifically with The Atlantic, because... You know, I have a creative freedom to, to kind of explore and, and, and to push a little bit harder than maybe some other places. But yeah, I think I'm in a pretty good place. <laughs> do you have a, a dream project out there that you would like to do? Like maybe you're like do your own thing or something? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've thought about that. <laughs> you mean like running my own <laughs> business or studio or something? Or like, you know, your own magazine no, or something like I would that? Never do my own thing. No. Never. <laughs> That's. <laughs> Like that's insane. You you've seen too yeah, much. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. how the sausage is made. Yeah. Actually gets done. I'll never, <laughs> never do that to myself. Maybe when I was younger and had more energy. But nah, man. I you know I try to keep things kind of low key. So I don't know if I need that much stress in my life. You know I prefer just kind of you know I'd love to get back to doing stuff by hand. You know silk screening and, and painting and stuff like that. And gotten into woodworking. So that's like my. <laughs> You know, that's kind of like my outlet now, mm-hmm. you know, build furniture and things of that nature. So I'm trying to get better at that. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't say that I want ever want to start my own magazine. Even having my own studio sounds pretty stressful just from <laughs> just from hearing other people's stories uh-huh. on, on your podcast and elsewhere. But, uh, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> but you know, The Atlantic's a great magazine and uh, people are great here. So shout out to everybody at The Atlantic. But uh, creatively, I'm, I'm able to explore and do things that I probably wouldn't be able to do anywhere else. So, But you never know. Anything. Woodworking, huh? Yeah. I could, yeah, pull off. The- Interesting. There's other designers that I've spoken to that they have sort of a, some kind of an offline tangible sort of hobby that they do that's still related to design, but it's not, you know, sitting in front of a computer and designing like a print piece or something yeah. like that. I remember reading in a in an older interview that you did that you mentioned if you had a million dollars, you would change the world with nicely designed posters. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Is that still the case? Would you still <laughs> want to do something like that? Oh, man. That's what I said with a million dollars. Jeez. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you said you would do silk screen posters because you mentioned yeah. silk screening and you would like go into neighborhoods like inner city neighborhoods like city of god and like put up posters and stuff so they could see design that is a great idea (laughs) that's that's not bad at all actually i kind of like that answer actually (laughs) yeah that would be cool man like you know to to do something that you know that that affects people's lives in a in a real way is it's always the goal i think as a designer or it should be i don't know it's probably not you know some people it's just about making money and, and selling stuff which is primarily what we all do but yeah if i were being uh sentimental about it to be able to change somebody's or you know make people a little happier <laughs> during the day either with a poster mm-hmm. or whatever i think that would be cool yeah i think there's still the market out there for posters yeah so not a bad yeah, idea I mean, you see like what uh jr is like that fine artist who you know, he goes into the favelas and will do like an art installation, and and, and it's just this beautiful experience. 
obviously that won't solve any substantial real problems economically or politically, but just to have that to, you know, might make somebody happy, you know, or in a more beautiful place to be. That's very idealist of me. That must have been when I was in my 20s. (laughs) (laughs) I have one last question here from Chris, Um, and I should have probably mentioned this earlier, but he says, what should designers that want to be art directors or creative directors do to prepare themselves for those kind of director positions? You just got to know how to work with people, you know, work with other people. And you have to be able to communicate. You have to communicate your ideas. You have to be able to communicate with the people that you work with, the people who work for you. You have to be able to communicate your vision. And sometimes it's very difficult to do that. But the most important job of, you know, creative director, editor-in-chief, anybody who's in charge of whatever department they're in, photo editor, you have to be able to communicate, not just to the people you work with, but to... You know, photographers to to illustrators like this is what I want specifically, and at the same time you have to be able to trust other people and let them do the work too, because that's when people enjoy working with you. That's when you get the best results. Is when you give people the trust to explore and to do what you brought them in to do. So yeah, yes, got to communicate. You got to trust in other people, but at the same time you have to have a clear vision. <laughs> And you just got to pick your battles on a day-to-day basis. Like, what are you going to fight for? What are you going to be able to let slide? Because it's usually not going to be perfect. <laughs> as, as much as you'd like it, you know, to be, there's going to be something you wish you did differently. But then you got to pick your battles. And again, you just got to realize you're part of a bigger picture and you're part of a bigger process. And you figure out what you can do within that process to to achieve your goals, whether it be visually or editorially or whatever the case may be you're, you're part of a process you're not the process you're not the you're not the end-all be-all you're a designer you're there to create a product that communicates now you're a family man that's right you got two kids yeah, right two kids a dog a fish <laughs> <laughs> are your kids interested in design yes actually my daughter in particular she's she's really into art and comic books, just like her old man. <laughs> and, you know, so sometimes, you know, I'll take the work home and I'll be working on the cover or whatever. And she'll, I'll let her play around in InDesign and change the color of the logo. And, and she's really into it. So, you know, we'll see where that takes her. But yeah, yeah. No, it's kind of cool to watch. <laughs> to watch that kind of, you know, I see the same kind of excitement that I used to have as a kid in, in the stuff she does. You know, she does other stuff. She writes, writes poetry. I mean, she's eight years old. And she's writing like poetry and stuff. So, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> now, I sort of also got this as I was doing my my research here. What are kind of the best things that you owe your parents besides your name? <laughs> besides my name? You mean like the spelling of my name? Yeah, I, I remember seeing that your your name's a combination of your yeah, parents. Yeah, man, you did some good research. Yeah, yeah. So Darcy and Hillary. So somehow they figured that. The combination created the name Daryl, but I think the best things that they give me is, I'd say, freedom to just just explore, you know? They weren't very overbearing, <laughs> for better or for worse. I maybe 
got into more trouble than I should have, but you know, they just kind of let me, they just kind of let me do my thing and just be myself and follow my passion and just give me the freedom to kind of explore and be myself. So shout out to my parents <laughs> for not forcing me to become an accountant or something like that. <laughs> there's anything wrong with being an accountant, but you know, they gave me an interesting, unique name and uh, <laughs> they gave me, you know, freedom to kind of explore and, and pursue this creative kind of career. Where do you see yourself in the next like five years or so? Like it's 2020. What do you think you'd be working on? I'll probably still be here. <laughs> I'll probably still be sitting at this desk, uh, honestly, you know, granted nothing changes as far as the way we consume media, but you know, I still, you know, I still enjoy the process, man. I still enjoy the process of of, of working with editors, of reading stories and, and learning about things I didn't know about before, working with photographers and getting an email in, in, uh, of an illustration and, you know, it's exactly what you wanted or what you were imagining. I really just love the process of all the little things just coming together and, and having this thing that you can hold at the, at the end of the month. I really, I really like that process. So unless they fire me or... <laughs> Or something happens, I'll probably still be here. Honestly, it's a privilege to do what I do, and and, and it's still fun. So you know, maybe I'm just getting older, but uh, <laughs> I'm content to just you know keep doing this until until I can't anymore. Well, just to wrap this interview up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Um, there's probably the best place now is, is Twitter. Honestly, uh, Daryl Crooks at at Daryl Crooks, and then. You know, I have a website that I haven't updated in a few years, but DarylCrooks.com. That's pretty much it. I'm a pretty, <laughs> I'm a pretty low key guy. I don't put a lot of Facebook. Um, my Instagram is private, so uh, <laughs> definitely look at the Twitter for the latest covers and, and you know projects that we're working on here. And, and yeah, check out the Atlantic on Instagram for for what we're working on. But yeah, just, just hit me up on Twitter, and that's that's the best place right now. All right, that sounds good. Well, Daryl Crooks, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Like I know you said you're kind of wrapping up this latest issue of the Atlantic, so I know you got to get back to work. But thank you for you know kind of walking me through what your your journey was like as a designer. You know how you approach projects, how you approach covers, and things like that, and really just kind of taking a good look at who you are as a designer. And as a person, I think it's always good to see someone that is at such, I think, you know, kind of from the outside looking in, that is at such a high level of design where your design is very visible by so many people to kind of know, like, who's the person behind yeah. that, I think is, is really good. So thank you again so much for taking time out well, to do this. Yeah. And thank you for, you know, for doing this. I think it's important what you're doing. I wish more stuff like this was around when <laughs> when I was coming up. So doing doing important work and on behalf of the design community, you know, thank you for, for doing for doing this podcast. It's great. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Daryl Crooks and of course thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Daryl and his work with the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks of course as always to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. 
No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SPREADLOVE at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. It's one of the best, easiest, cheapest, actually it's free. It's one of the best things you can do to help the show. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Oh, and don't forget about our holiday gift guide contest. Again, go to revisionpath.com. Click that green banner at the top of the page and check that out. That contest ends on December 15th. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.